It was hot and still. An August night in the middle of April. But that didn't matter to the striptease dancer in the golden mask. Because murder made her blood run cold the night the heat wave struck. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Heat Wave. Spring was only three weeks old, but the sun bore down on Los Angeles with the middle of the summer vengeance. At noon, it was 102 in the shade, and by 3.30, with doors, window, and shirt collar all open as far as they would go, I still swaltered in the kind of heat that wilts both your clothes and your character. I tried to make sense from the crisp words of a telegram I just received from one Karen Driscoll, Jr., no less, of Knob Hill, San Francisco. It told me to go to the Palace Theater, a burlesque house on Main Street, watch the performance of the featured dancer, get backstage, and take a close look at her face, then meet the 7 o'clock plane from San Francisco and report what I'd seen to Miss Driscoll, uh, Jr. It was a strange request coming from Knob Hill, but the enclosed $50 money order wasn't kidding, so... I perspired my way down to the Palace Theater. There, instead of the usual 30 beautiful girls, 30 sign over the marquee, was a 50-foot gold banner that screamed, The Heat Wave, Who Is She? And the showcase cards that led to the box office were all a circle of question marks that centered a woman wearing a strange gold mask and little else. I bought a ticket and went inside in time for the tail end of the matinee. A baggy-pants comedian was just winding up a corny south-of-the-border routine as I sat down. out of an oversized sombrero in a hybrid hat dance and then galloped off under the wings. After reminding myself that I was here on business, I sat down again as a personality boy in brown flannel and a yellow shirt stepped into the spotlight with his arms raised. Ladies and gentlemen, you're now privileged to witness one of the most unusual and breathtaking spectacles ever presented on any stage. The moment you will see her, the woman of mystery, performing exotic rites to the pagan sun god of the Incas, exactly as they were performed 3,000 years ago in the strange temples of the Andes. But who is she? Who is this woman? And who knows what secrets lie behind her mask of gold? The Palace Theater presents the masked marvelous, the beautiful, the dazzling, the mysterious Heat Wave. <laughs> had to admit it. This was special. She was the color of alabaster and as supple as a cat, and as she moved across the stage, she got more convolutions out of her two arms than a restless octopus could with eight. Her costume from the neck down was about as sheer as a new spider web, and above that and covering her face completely was a gold mask, grotesque and glistening. As the dance headed for a climax designed to knock the cash customers right out of their seats, I uh, reminded myself again that I was here on business. 
So I walked down the side aisle to a door that led backstage and went through it just as the dance ended. And while the audience tore the house down begging for more, the heat wave tossed a couple of kisses through a gold mask and ran to a dressing room. I started after her and was halfway there when a bulging hulk in a shark-skin suit that measured 6'6 in every direction lumbered casually out of the shadows and took a bulldog stance with his back against the dressing room door. I started thinking up fast ad libs and was hot for a switch on the eager reporter gag when the baggy pants comic slid up beside me. Hey, chum. Huh? They're asking for Loda Mayhem if you try to get to the heat wave past Jesse there. Jesse? He the man mountain in the sharkskin suit? Yeah, with orders to break bones. Oh. Uh, maybe I can help you out. Good. But how come? <laughs> yeah, let's go around to the side. Uh, you're a reporter, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, Inky Barnes can use a little publicity, too, you know. <laughs> uh, hold it here by the door. Uh, now, what is it you have to know? Well, all I want's one look at her face. Yeah, that's a cinch. <laughs> I said I'd help you out, and I will. Like this. <laughs> Right out there in the alley. And don't come back before midnight, goon. You can see her face then when she takes her mask off. I should have known better, but all I wanted at the moment was to kick the slack out of a pair of baggy pants. So I bounced back up the steps, jerked the door open, and ran head-on into three square yards of sharkskin suit. It was Jesse. You ain't welcome around here, bum, so stay out. Have you got it? Okay, Jesse, let's say I've got it. Yeah. Also, don't drop it as you walk away. I was glad to remember that I had a client to meet at the airport. So in spite of the fact that the heat wave's face was still a well-kept secret behind a gold mask, I took Jesse's good advice and left. Flight 11 from San Francisco arriving at gate 4... Will Dr. Robert Reamer please report to the information desk? When the plane Dr. taxied Robert to a stop at the airline's gate, it was 7 o'clock sharp. And as the passengers unloaded a tall, sinuous brunette with arched eyebrows, an imperial gesture, and a hat that had kept some imaginative milliner out of the red for several months had to be Miss Karen Driscoll, Jr. I introduced myself, ushered her to the cocktail lounge, and when a Gibson sparkled in front of each of us, she got down to business. Well, Marlowe, did you see her? Uh, yes and no. I have a photograph here. Look, is this the same girl? Uh, oh, it's a headshot. It's pretty, but no help, Miss Driscoll. You didn't see her face then? No, look, Junior, do I refund your money now or start asking questions? Don't be ridiculous. I must know who that girl is, and I'll tell you why. This picture is of my sister, Midge Driscoll. Oh? Think your sister's the heat wave? Yes. Oh, she's doing it to humiliate me, Marlowe. Tomorrow, I'm being married to a man whose family is distinguished in diplomatic circles. No. And this burlesque heatwave woman is, is to be revealed at midnight tonight. If she is my sister, can you imagine what the papers will do with that story tomorrow morning? Yeah, some wedding present. But your own sister, I don't get it. Why? Oh, it's an old hate, Marlowe. Midge lost a love affair, and I won it years ago. She's never gotten over it. Oh. And she's done things before. The day I was elected president of the Metropolitan Club, she faked an elopement with my chauffeur. The night of my engagement party, she rode a horse into the flamingo room. A brawl started, and she spent the night in jail. Last yeah, I see year, what you I... mean, but this heat wave's got a lot of talent for burlesque. A lot of experience in a line. In fact, uh, <laughs> she's a sensation, let's face it. So what makes you think it's major, huh? Oh, no. I found the name Tracy Leak in her apartment in San Francisco. 
He's the manager of the Palace Theatre here. I learned that from a newspaper story in which Josh Freeman... Josh Freeman? Yes, the big producer. Oh. He's supposed to be bargaining with Lake for his heatwave discovery. Oh, she's done a thorough advanced publicity job, all right. What if she turns out to be your sister? What then? That's my business. I know how to make money talk, Marlowe. And I've more than enough for a polite but firm conversation. Your job is merely to find out for sure between now and midnight if my sister actually is this heat wave. I'll take care of everything else. Karen Driscoll, Jr. gave me her local phone number, then got up, cursed the hot night, bid me hurry, and summoned a taxi. All with a regal wave, one hand. And I was left to my own devices in something less than five hours to make them work in, so I drove back to the Palace Theater, which was stalling until midnight by showing a triple feature movie. Paid another admission and slipped backstage again. It was deserted except for two electricians tied up in pinnacle under the switchboard light. The heat wave's dressing room was locked. Jesse was nowhere in sight, and... I was about to leave again when I heard a familiar voice cooing into a dark yeah. note that turned out hey, to be baby. a phone booth. Say, uh, it was Hinky Barnes, the baggy pants comic. Beauty, hey, beauty to the beautiful, you know. Hey, hey uh, listen, baby. About that other deal, did you talk to her? She won't. You sure? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, look, I gotta talk to you. How about dinner? You can't? Well, I know you got things on your mind, but... Uh, yeah, honey, I know you're tired. Well, okay. Don't worry, things are going to be okay. You'll see. Bye-bye, baby. Hey, Hinky. Oh, you again. Yeah, that's right. <coughs> that brings us up to date, even Stephen. Now, get this. First, I'm not a reporter. Second, I represent Josh Freeman's office. And third, I haven't got all night. You... You mean Josh Freeman, the big producer? Know any other Josh Freeman? I want to talk to Tracy Lake about the heat wave, but I want to see her before I talk. Is she here? No. Well, she won't be back until the big midnight show. Where's Tracy, then? He's home. The Toppet House on Wilshire. About two blocks down from Arthur Murray's. Hey, but listen. Uh, tell me something. Is, uh, is Josh going to make a star out of her? With a talent like hers? What do you think, Inky? left Hinky with his mouth hanging open and the fire of ambition burning like an alcohol lamp in each eye as I drove out to the Toppet House on Wiltshire. Leaning on the bell at Tracy Lake's apartment, I got ready to be a hard-hitting, practical-minded producer's right-hand man. Yeah, what is it? Tracy, my name's Marlowe out of Josh Freeman's office. Caught the heat waves act this afternoon, willing to wrap her up and take her home right now. But not sight unseen. Wait, Who is she? Wait a minute. Huh? You say you're from Josh Freeman, Marlowe? That's right. And I got a blank check right here in my pocket. Authorized to fill it out unless you're completely unreasonable. I see. Well, now, look, Marlowe, this heat wave thing has gone over a thousand percent better than any of us expected. Yeah, I know, I know, but you see... The uh, price is high already, and the bids have only started to come in. Oh, uh, excuse me. I just opened a bottle of Paul Masson over there. Help yourself, Marlowe. I'll be right back. A perfectly good telephone sat within an arm's reach of Lake, but instead he went down the hall to an extension and closed the door behind him. It was distinctly malpractice, but time was running out on me, so I picked up the phone and listened. Is Mr. Ridgely uh, the jeweler? Oh, yes. What is it, Ridgely? The bracelet you selected is ready now. We can deliver it immediately. Fine. It goes to Miss Nita LeVar, 44 Edgewood Terrace. Oh, uh, enclose a card. Uh, don't worry, darling. You are my real heat wave. Sign it, Tracy. Lovely, lovely. Uh, and the engagement ring? Uh, the sunburst? Yeah, that's for Miss LeVar, too. But deliver that to the theater at midnight. Got it? Yes, indeed, 
Tracy Lake and Nita LeVar. Who might she be? Sorry, Marlowe, a little personal business. Now, uh, you were saying... Yeah, yeah, I was saying I can hand you a nice fat check if this mass Marvelous is really okay. You're building up to quite a surprise, Tracy. You must have something. <laughs> yes, indeed I have, old boy. Plenty. Yeah? I can't reveal the lady's name until midnight, All right, but all right, play coy. What's her background? Has she got class? Class? Marlowe, you wouldn't believe it. Not blue book stuff? Society girl in burlesque? Why, anything's possible, Marlowe. Sure, sure. She could even be from Knob Hill, huh? Yeah, like I said. Anything's, anything's possible, possible, sure. Okay, Tracy, that's what I wanted to find out. See you after the unveiling, and you got a great night for it. Oh, Marlo, uh, hmm? I suppose uh, Big Ed Peters is in on the deal as usual, along with Josh. Yeah, it's a regular Josh Freeman deal, just as usual. <laughs> See you later, Tracy. <laughs> This is Marlowe, Jr. I just wound up an interview with Tracy Lake. When I threw Knob Hill at him, he turned green. But it's not official yet. The odds are high that it's your sister Midge, all right, who's knocking him dead as the heat wave. I knew it. That horrible, vindictive little tramp. What else, Marlowe? Did you find out where she is? Yeah, yeah. She's going under the name of Needle Lavar and staying at 44 Edgewood Terrace near MacArthur Park. But listen, it's not positive yet, so I'm going there to check right now. Where are you calling from, Marlowe? A phone booth at a closed gas station out here on Wilshire. But I... Oh... Uh, I am about to start earning that fee of yours, baby. 300 pounds of muscle in a sharkskin suit just walked up. Goodbye. Hello, Sonny. Well, my Piltdown pal. So the boss was right. You're just a cheap, nosy reporter, after all. It's cramped in there, ain't it? But you're not getting out, bub. Uh, now, wait a minute, Jesse. It's a hot night. Let's not work up a sweat, huh? Don't you worry about that. Mr. Lake pegged you as a phony nosy, and that's bad. What do you mean, phony? You said Big Ed Peters was in on a deal with Josh Freeman. All right, what about it? Big Ed's been dead for 12 years. And you know what? He's still going to look better than you are 30 seconds from now. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, tomorrow night, in order of their appearance, you'll hear Joseph Cotton, Ozzie and Harriet, Jack Benny and his gang, Amos and Andy, Sam Spade, Lum and Abner, Helen Hayes, Eve Arden, and hold tight now, a special show with Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, Claudette Colbert, and Don over most of these same CBS network stations. And Jack Benny with Mary, Phil, Dennis, Don, and Rochester will be heard over them all. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Heat Wave. When the little man in big iron boots who were kicking at the lining of my temples finally quit, and I dragged myself back up to the vertical, Gargantua was gone. I was sure of only two things. Tracy Lake did not know that I was anything other than a nosy reporter, and second and more important, it was time for me to head for Edgewood Terrace and the lady known as Nita LaVar. As I started for the front door of number 44, which was an all-alone stucco and a tile L-shape that showed a single light, 
the little men in iron boots went to work again. It reminded me that it might be healthier if I first found out exactly what was waiting behind the mat marked welcome. So I made a wise circle around to the back, then in closer past the whispering huddle of palms through a flagstone patio that led to a short flight of also flagstone steps. But there, when I was only a few feet from an uncurtained window, I stopped at the sight of something I hadn't expected. It was the body of a woman lying in a twisted heap at the bottom of the stairs. When I moved closer, I saw that the ugly cut on the side of her head that had killed her had come from the jagged edge of the last step. I also saw that the woman was Midge Driscoll. Next to the body, there was an overturned crushed sprinkling can, which meant that she could have fallen to her death accidentally. Also, it could have meant that if murdered, a killer had overturned and crushed the sprinkling can as well. I was somewhere between the two thoughts when I heard a car break to a stop in front of the house, then high heels on a cement walk. I quietly moved around to where I could see something tall and blonde who, in a better light, would have been better looking. Good evening. What? Who's that? Name's Philip Marlowe. Mean anything? And try this. I'm a friend of Midge Driscoll's. Midge? I never heard of anyone by that name. I'll bet. <clears throat> Step up a little closer, honey. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Bright Eyes. I... Midge! Yeah, yeah, Midge. Uh, in Driscoll. Name you never heard of, remember? Now, what do you say? Do we play it straight? Yeah, yeah. I'm Nita LaVar, Mr. Marlowe. Baby, you're getting in deeper by the minute, and by that I specifically mean that Midge Driscoll here and Nita LeVar are one and the same. Oh, you're crazy. I know my own name. It is and always has been Nita LeVar. That's Midge Driscoll. All right, since you've grown so cooperative, maybe you can tell me why she's dead. Oh, it could be that she fell down those stairs. An hour before her unmasking is the heat wave. Heat wave? You know an awful lot, mister. How come? It's strictly business. I'm a private detective with clients. We'll talk about that later. Right now, it's time to go in and call the police. And don't tell me you can't find your key. Don't worry, private detective. I won't. Here, catch. Got it. Now, let's get inside. But let's not call the police, huh? Why not? Are you afraid that they'll... Oh, I see what you and that pretty little gun mean. I'm glad. I'd hate to have to shoot you. Why? Want a night your quarter? Don't be funny. I didn't kill Midge. Then why no police? For a very good reason. Until tonight, Marlowe, I've been the heat wave. The substitute heat wave for Milady there who didn't have the time or the talent for the build-up to the great joke she was going to pull on her sister. You mean you were the one I saw today? The one everybody saw every day. And liked. Liked so much that business boomed and all the heads in the front row weren't bald. Which has what to do with me calling the police? In general, everything. In particular, my career. I tried to get that crazy kid there to back off and let me go on with the act that she'd kill after one performance, but no. Miss Bunny Money Banks wouldn't hear of it. Now that she's dead, you're in, is that it? Solid. And that's also the reason why I don't want to spend the next two hours talking to cops. So go on, put the key in the lock, turn it, open the door, and walk in. What happens then? Then, Mr. Marlowe, we call Tracy Lake and arrange for a playmate for you. Playmate named Jesse, maybe. A playmate named Jesse. And no, maybe. When we got inside, Needle Lavao handled a prisoner with the finesse of a Marine Guard detachment, took my gun, threw it across the room, put me into a faraway straight-back chair and got through to Tracy Lake without once taking her baby blue eyes off me. Then when she told the man she called Darling all about Midge's death, which could have been for my benefit, she placed a rush order for the monster. 
After that, she hung up, sat down, lit a cigarette, and waited. But a second later, she was back on her feet. When I said that friend Jessie was fast, she said I should shut up and more. Listen, Marlo, you do exactly as I say. Coming! Now stay right where you are and don't so much as open your mouth. Who is it? It's me, Nita. Hinky. Oh, good. Come on in, Hinky. Hi. I just happened to be going by, and since I knew it was Midge's night, I thought... This... Never mind what you thought. Just come in and listen. It isn't Midge's night, Hinky. It's mine. And don't ask questions now. Here. Ooh, what's the gun for, Nita? What's the matter? A private detective, but public nuisance, named Marlowe. Marlowe, a detective? Mm-hmm. He told me he was from Josh Freeman's office. Ah, he was lying. Now, get this, Hinky. Midge Driscoll is out and back, dead. But why... I don't know why, and I care less. But Marlowe here is crazy for calling the cops which would leave me at midnight doing my big number for the desk sergeant. <laughs> Great. So use that gun, see, and hold him here until Jesse shows up, which should be any minute. Now, goodbye, and be careful, Hinky. So long, bright boy. Gentle soul, huh, Barnes? Never mind, Milo. Save the gap for Jesse. He's a great listener. I doubt if he'll give me the time, considering that I know it's an odds-on bet it'll be a couple of slugs in my belt buckle before he's even in the room. Jesse kill you? Why would he do that? Because he works for Tracy Lake. Tracy Lake has to kill me, Barnes. I know he's a murderer. Midge Driscoll was murdered? You sure of that? Just about. Doesn't figure any other way. Nita herself told me how much this chance means to her and how hard she tried to get Midge to back off. Yeah, but Tracy, how does he tie in? Two ways. The money he'll get out of the show continuing indefinitely, and better than that, the fact that he and Nita are going to be married. Those two get married? You're nuts, Marlowe. No, no, it's straight, Barnes. I know, because I overheard Tracy talking to a jeweler about the ring he ordered. Now, you mind if I have a cigarette? Hey, Barnes, can I reach for a cigarette? Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Hey, hey, hey Marlo, you sure of this? Everything you just said, I mean, uh, about them getting married and all? Sure I am. Why, a little disgusted with your buddies? Yeah, a little. So as of right now, you can do as you want. I'm leaving. No, you're not, Mr. Barnes. Hey, Jesse, hey, hey, Jesse, don't shoot. I won't, Mr. Barnes. Unless, of course, you or Buster try to get out of here. Oh, who, me, Jesse? Yeah. You were going to let Marlowe go, Mr. Barnes. I don't think Mr. Lake would like that. I'm sure he wouldn't, Jesse. So why don't you just save everyone a lot of time and start pulling that trigger? Well, you can still see what you're doing. Hey, the light! Get going, Barnes! You, you dirty louse! I'll fix you! You'll never get out of here alive. Where? Where are you? Come on, talk. Where are you? Where are you? Answer me, you hear? Answer me. With pleasure. Oh, you stinking slime. I, I'll tear you apart if I get my hands on you. Which, Jesse boy, is the trick. And now for our meeting in a phone booth, flowers, your big ape, bars and all. I got some lights on and found my gun where Nita had tossed it when we first came in. I checked Jesse over once to make sure that he was neither dead nor too alive. Then I started for the door. But there, even as my hand closed over the knob, I stopped. A crazy thought from I don't know where wedging its way into my mind. I turned back toward the room and stared at the flower and vase strewn form of the ape that covered half the carpet. Then slowly the wedge broke through and there was light, lots of it. The kind in which I could see why Midge Driscoll had been murdered. And more important, why I had to get to the Palace Theater and needle a bar before murder happened again. I lurched from the curb in front of Nita's at 20 minutes to 12. 
When I screeched to a stop downtown at the palace without somehow hitting or being hit along the way, those 20 minutes were gone. And I was worried because midnight meant that Nita would already be on stage for the unmasking. I raced past the general at the door and then across the lobby and into the theater where I figured I could get down a side aisle of the wings. That was figuring wrong. Because fire laws notwithstanding, the place was strictly SRO and packed tighter than the seventh game World Series. Between the backs of perspiring necks, I could see that Nita, who was across stage from Tracy Lake himself and in the center of a single spotlight that could have opened a supermarket, was still masked. So while I prayed that Lake, who was winding up his spiel, would think of bigger and better adjectives, I ran back to the lobby and around to a flight of stairs that led to the first balcony, where over on one side and near the railing, I found an old man who was daddy to a trio of baby spots and the one giant that was on Nita. I shoved him aside just as Lake finished and the maestro took over. And with one hand, I got a good grip on the 38 in my pocket, and with the other, the handle on the big spot. Hey, what are you doing? Hoping I'm wrong, Dad. But if not, hoping the gun I expect doesn't come from the wings, but... Hey, there, in that side balcony near the curtain, see it? Yeah, it's a gun, all right. Hey, that's Hinky Barnes. Right. Let's give the funny man a big audience and lots of light. You're on, Barnes. Watch out, he's going to shoot at us. Yeah, and us at him. You got him, you got him. It was 20 minutes of bedlam. Police, music, and two quick numbers by Needle Lavar, all of whose shaking was not routine. Before the palace got back to the quiet business of being a burlesque house, and the show went on. It was another hour and 20 minutes before it was all over, and the theater was empty and dark except for a work light on the stage where Nita, Tracy Lake, and I were sitting in the middle of a papier-mâché Inca civilization. Well, Marlowe, the police say they think he's going to live for a while. Can't figure the guy. Never knew he felt that way about Nita here. Neither did I. I was always okay to him, and I knew he cared some, but that's as far as it went. With you, Nita, yeah. But with Hinky, it was something else. Something strong enough to make him kill Midge Driscoll so that Nita would get a big chance, eh, Marlowe? Mm-hmm. And when he found out through me that you two were going to be married, he... He realized that the murder he had committed was for nothing. And now he was going to make one count. So he turned on you, Nita. How did you find out in time to get to him before he could make a try for Nita? The way the guy sagged when I said you were going to be married told me all I had to know. But it was cinched by the American beauties draped around Jesse. American beauties? Flowers? Yeah, yeah. See, I remembered a phone call Hinky made. You, Nita, had been the lady he'd talked to and loved. From there on out, it was a little better than a shot in the dark. Two shots in the dark, Marlowe. <laughs> Good ones that are responsible for Nita still being here with us. Thanks, fella. Yeah, Marlowe, thanks a lot. Don't mention it. After all, I was paid for my work, and besides, eh, that dance you do, Nita, hmm, belongs to posterity. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. still hot in the city. I had no enthusiasm for further conversation and a very sticky feeling from head to foot. So I took care of Karen Driscoll Jr. in a fast telephone call and then pointed my car for my apartment. I couldn't help thinking of poor little Hinky Barnes, who brought laughter to everyone else but could find no happiness for himself. He was like the man who went to see a doctor one day and said, Doctor, I can't laugh anymore. And the doctor said, go and see Grock, the greatest clown of them all. If he can't make you laugh, there's no help for you. The man smiled and said, thank you, doctor. You see, I am Grock. <laughs> 
Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Wilms Herbert, Ed Begley, Elsie Holmes, Barney Phillips, and Byron Kane. The special music is by Richard O'Ron. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started at dawn in a Los Angeles taxi and wound up that night on a cliff in the middle of the Pacific. All because of a Dutchman with 50,000 bucks, a corpse, and a lily pond, and an Oriental with a chauffeur who wanted a cloak made of nothing but feathers. It started at dawn in a Los Angeles taxi and wound up that night on a cliff in the middle of the Pacific. All because of a Dutchman with $50,000, a corpse in a lily pond, and an Oriental with a chauffeur who wanted a cloak made of nothing but feathers. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. With Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Cloak of Kamehameha. message that a repulsively wide-awake boy who was missing a tooth front row center had delivered at 6 in the a.m. had come in two parts. The first scrawled in black ink on a wrinkled piece of paper said, Marlowe, get hold of a taxi cab. Poses the driver yourself and at exactly 8 o'clock this morning come past 8840 North Ogden Drive. Signed, Pollard Schindler. The second half made more sense. It was printed in neat letters on neater green paper and under an engraving of Benjamin Franklin read, 100 silver dollars payable to the bearer on demand. So at exactly 8 o'clock, I was behind the wheel of a hired cab, leather jacket, peak cap, toothpick and all, and within hay taxi distance of number 8840. Mr. Pollard Schindler, a round man in square clothes with haircut to match, was not late. Taxi! Are you there? Taxi, wait! Yes, sir. Cab? Of course. Why do you think I'm shouting my head off? I want to go to the municipal airport. Do you understand? The municipal airport at Inglewood. Okay, okay, Inglewood. Municipal airport it is. Marlowe, hmm? the meter, quick, put the flag down. Every minute I'm being watched. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Watched by whom, Mr. Schindler? Yeah, I do not know. Now, listen carefully, Marlowe. Later, you are to go to the Halema'ana Hotel and wait for a young lady named Lani Collier. Mm-hmm. Then, at the hour she designates, you go to her house, number 44 Diamond Head Circle and pick up the cloak. Oh, wait a minute. Holly Moana, Diamond Head, all those places. This hotel isn't by any chance in Hawaii, is it? Uh, didn't I mention this in my note? No, you didn't. 
Nor did you mention picking up a cloak. Ah, that just proves I haven't been myself ever since yesterday when I received this anonymous letter that's postmarked Honolulu. All it says is, Kamehameha's cloak of golden feathers will bring no less than death. Huh. Marlo, uh, have you ever been to the islands? Yeah, twice. Once business, once pleasure. Well, then surely you've heard people speak of King Kamehameha. Oh, sure. He was back in the 1780s, right? Uh, yeah, Big yeah. organizer conquered Oahu by driving the defenders over that cliff that divides the island. Uh, it divides yeah, it yeah, two, the, you the know. Bali, That's Bali, it, yeah. that's it. Uh, Marlowe, the feathered cloak that Kamehameha wore was about 100 square feet, and every inch of it a golden yellow feather. Huh? And valued at more than half a million dollars. Really? How come? Well, the feathers. Oh, yes. Sure. They are from the now extinct black marmo bird, Marlow, and there was only one yellow feather on each bird. That could explain why they're now extinct. Yes. Don't tell me this is all a game of Collier to Marlow to Schindler with a cloak that belongs to the museum. Oh, no, no, Marlow, no, it isn't uh, with the cloak you speak of. But Lonnie Collier has another one, less valuable, of course. It's one quarter the size. Oh. But it also belonged to the king, and it also is made of the priceless feathers. And is this her property to have and to hold legal-like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lonnie is wealthy, young. How young? About 25. Oh, she went to a fashionable schools here in California, and as a result, cares more about fun and furs from I.J. Fox than she does priceless heirlooms. Uh, so for $50,000, I have bought the cloak to resell to a New York millionaire for almost twice that sum. It's a lot of loot. Well, yes, he loves island law oh, and... figures. Uh, Marlo, I was right. I am still being followed. Don't look back. Just drive faster. No, 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 no. Do nothing. This is exactly as I want it. Whoever it is will follow me, not you. And when I am in Honolulu, they will still follow me. Well, I take care of the business on hand, huh? Yeah, yes, yes. There is a reservation for you on the next plane. So, after you leave me and collect your cab fare, which will be $500, you drive away. And then later, Marlowe, get back here, board your plane, and underway. And tonight, when I've got the cloak? Take it back to your hotel room at the Halemoana and sit on it hard. Mm -hmm. Because unless I am a complete success as a decoy, you will have your share of trouble, too, I'm sure. But, Marlowe... From which specific direction it will come, I do not know. I got the 500 bucks, which was the cover expenses for my Honolulu trip, and I was told to keep the change. So after I'd returned both cab and costume to their owner, I added 10 to the original hiring price and had him drive me back to my apartment and wait while I packed. Then I got into the cab again, rear seats, at Municipal Airport, Inglewood, and settled back to think about the crossroads of the Pacific. Lovely hula hands and what shouldn't be too rough a job. But there I was wrong. Because in the next minute and those that followed, everything was done the hard way. First we ran out of gas, then got tied up in a traffic jam, and after that got stopped for speeding. All of which added up to me at the airport just in time to watch my plane take off without me. But then when I told a cherubic clerk in a gray flannel and insipid smile that my name was Philip Marlowe, and that I wanted a reservation on the next flight which was leaving in an hour, things got even worse. But you can't be Philip Marlowe, sir. That is not the Philip Marlow who was on flight 21 that just left. Uh, you have a reason for saying that? Well, I most certainly do. There were 36 seats on that plane, sir. And when she took off, all 36 were full. Now, I know, I checked them myself, and I don't make mistakes. Well, bully for you, boy. But I happen to be both Philip Marlow and the man who was supposed to be on that plane. Also, Buster, I'm out of patience. Now, do I get the next plane or don't I? Come on, I can't stand indecision. Well, I... You what? Well, I think it can be arranged, Mr. Marlowe. As a matter of fact, I know it can. Well, in that case, my friend, thank you. When we took
took off, my frame of mind left me ready and waiting for at least a crack-up at sea. But an hour later, the last of California had slipped over the horizon, and there was only clear sky ahead. I began to relax. My mind drifted pleasantly. The flavor of the lime lifesaver in my mouth made me think of tall, wondrous, frosted Hawaiian punches. <laughs> and the sinuous grace of lovely hula hands. And I opened my eyes again. Diamond Head was in front of us, majestic in the red glow of the evening sun. It gave all of the lush Moana Valley I could see the texture of thick velvet. We landed like the airport was made of marshmallows. And a half hour later, I was in the lobby of the Halimoana Hotel. It was cushioned rattan and Filipino mahogany over cool tile. And everywhere, laughing sunburned faces wearing bright splashes of color. So smiling both inside and out, I walked briskly to the reservation desk and told a good-looking Hawaiian in white flannel that I was Philip Marlowe. But at his reply, I stopped smiling, both inside and out. But, sir, your reservation was taken two hours ago. There must be some mistake. I doubt it. But you are Philip Marlowe of Los Angeles, sir. That's right, and I've been through this before today because of what I thought was an error due to... Uh, uh, due to what, sir? Hmm? Uh, nothing. No, I'll talk to you later. a large circle of mirror on the wall behind the clerk. And even as we had talked, I caught the reflection of a beautiful tan girl in a cocoa brown suit, white pearls and no stockings, who at the mention of my name had done a take that had made a long blonde hair whip straight out. When she saw me watching her, she pivoted sharply on a spiked heel and hurried toward a lanai under a banyan tree where there was Hawaiian music and a lot of different looking people drinking at glass top tables under a three-quarter moon. I stayed near the reservation desk long enough to light a cigarette and then... I followed her. She was seated away from the lobby entrance, and on a hunch that she might be Lani Kalia, I started for an empty table next to hers. But a middle-aged Chinese in gray gabardine and Panama to match slipped into the chair that I was after. So I forgot about being subtle and addressing her as Miss Kalia introduced myself as an old and dear friend of Pollard Schindler's. One Leland Dunn. Well, this is a pleasant surprise, Mr. Dunn. But tell me, how did you know what I looked like? Well, Pollard Schindler's accent doesn't hamper his vocabulary, Miss Collier. <laughs> he used the right adjectives, believe me. I'd love to believe you. But I can't, Mr. Dunn, because Pollard Schindler never saw me in his life. All our business was done by telephone. Okay, my mistake. I'm Philip Marlowe, Lanny, and I want to know when we rendezvous at 44 Diamond Head Circle for the cloak of Kamehameha. The cloak? Yeah. You're no more Philip Marlowe than you are Leland Dunn. And if you need a reason, it's that I just left Philip Marlowe upstairs. Now, wait a minute, baby. There's only one Marlowe. That's me. I can prove it. I'll bet you can. Forged papers and all. I've already been warned to watch for imposters, so quit wasting both your time and mine and get out of my way. I've got things to do. Now, wait, Lonnie, I... For what? Proof that you're neither Dunn nor Marlowe, but Kamehameha himself? No thanks and goodbye. If there had been a door, she'd have slammed it. Well, now I had two clues. One, an obvious party who had assumed the name of Philip Marlowe, and the other, Lani Collier. Less obvious, but more intriguing. So figuring the road company Marlowe would keep, I followed Lani, who by this time was getting into a new yellow Nash convertible. Before I got to her, she stepped on the gas, threw her lights on, and lurched from the curb. So I ran across the street to what I thought was a taxi, but I was wrong, because it turned out to be a chauffeured limousine and being helped in by a small, swarthy item of dubious lineage in a wrinkled cotton uniform was the Chinese in Greg Gabardine and Panama to match, who had been sitting near us on the lanai. But what counted more was that he obviously sensed my problem. You wish to follow the girl, sir? 
Yeah, it's a lover's spat, you know what I mean? <laughs> I think so. Oh. Well, Jolo, quickly. Yes, sir. You know where she's going? I'm not sure. Maybe Diamond Head Circle. Lady is gaining, sir. Let's make it Diamond Head Circle. Is there a faster way there, a shortcut? There is. Jolo, no, no, no. Which means what? Means never mind Diamond Head Circle. Drive fast to the factory instead. And do not move, Mr. Marlowe. Marlowe? Oh. Comes the heavy artillery, huh? Okay, Fu Manchu, what's with the factory? You, out of the way, until the cloak of Kamehameha is mine. Which won't work, because believe it or not, clever one, there's another Philip Marlowe who at the moment is a lot closer to that collection of fancy feathers than either of us. <laughs> you, you lie. A stupid bit for freedom. I bet they will not get you. Don't look at the top, look out! Oh, it was my chance. As we hit, I slapped at his gun and then jerked the handle of the door and jumped. When I got to my feet, I was on the sidewalk and bruised, but better off than China Boy, who was draped over the back of the front seat and shouting dirty words in a half a dozen Oriental dialects at both Jolo and the driver of the pineapple truck that had sideswiped us. A crowd that included a towering Hawaiian policeman who promptly told mine host to shut up, gathered in a hurry, so I ran for a taxi, gave the driver ten bucks the address I wanted, and took off. The street on which Lani Kaya lived was a neat curving strip that rose sharply from sea level up to the shadow of Diamond Head itself. And we were there in less than ten minutes, but finding number 44 was something else. And another 30 minutes disappeared before we finally parked away from the place, which was glass, Kona wood, and you can't find the front door without a blueprint tucked deep behind a thick grove of date palms. I told the driver to back down the hill without using his motor. Then I slipped into the grounds and carefully moved toward the house until what I thought was the trunk of another palm tree stepped into my path fast. Stop where you are. At the top, which was over six and a half feet, there was a shock of flaming red hair. The whole frame was half covered in dirty yellow shirt, once upon a time white ducks and battered brown sandals. In broad daylight, it would have looked worse. You. Who are you? Uh, someone with an appointment to see Miss Collier. Why, you belong to this place? Yes, and this place belongs to me as well. All of it. Miss Collier included. She's mine to protect. You understand that, Malahini? Malawich? Malahini. Greenhorn. Tourist. The kind that I hate. The kind that's ravaging all that's beautiful. Stealing the islands from those to whom they belong. Now, take it easy, Red. I'm not here to ravage or stick your pretty island into my pocket when you're not looking. All I want is words with Lani Collier. You're like the rest of them, trying with cunning and deceit to turn her head away from these shores and toward the mainland where you come from. I won't stand for it. Look, why don't we break this round table up and get to the house? I'm in a hurry. All right. But I'm sure that Lanny will be on my side. So sure, in fact, that we really shouldn't disturb the flower, should we? Should we? Oh! Malahini. <laughs> just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, if mystery and detection are your dish, don't forget you can get more of the same over CBS. Tomorrow, for instance, is the day when two unique and widely differing sleuths make their weekly appearance. One is that well-known character, Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett's hard-boiled private eye. The other sleuth, whose adventures are yours every Sunday, is Danny Clover, an old hand on that gaudy street called Broadway. Broadway is my beat, says Danny Clover, and it's a beat where anything can happen. Both Broadway is my beat and the adventures of Sam Spade 
come to you over most of these same CBS network stations. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Cloak of Kamehameha. Red-headed lunatic with a slow, soft voice and fast, hard fist took me by surprise, and I wound up flat on my back before I realized he'd so much as moved. By the time I got to my feet and took after him, he was sprinting for a bamboo thicket and had a 30-yard lead, which was all he needed to lose me completely. When I finally untangled myself from the jungle, I came out on the road. But then I heard a motor behind me, so I dove for the underbrush again just as a heavy car roared by. I'd seen it before. In fact, I'd been in it. It was the limousine that belonged to the Chinaman. The back seat was empty, but the half-care chauffeur, Jolo, who was crouched behind the wheel, drove out of sight like his life depended on it. As I walked back toward the house, I saw that a door was standing open and spilling a shaft of yellow light across the dark grounds. I started up the walk when it came. Then a second later, Lenny Collier burst into the path of light and ran for the open door. I went after her, caught her by one arm, and spun her around. No, no, let me go. What happened? Why'd you scream, Lenny? Back there, in the pond. Yeah? I heard a noise, and when I came outside, I found him... Found who? Come on, show me. I, I, I talked to him just a few minutes ago. I, I gave him the cloak. Yeah? Now it's gone, and he's dead with a knife in his back. What? There. Look there in the water. Oh, brother. Who is it, Lanny? Do you know him? Yes. That's Philip Marlowe. skin on my neck crawled as Lanny tagged the thing in the lily pond with my name. He was face down in the shallow water in three inches of crooked steel and the ugly carved handle of a Chris stuck straight up between his shoulder blades. Somebody had made a very grim mistake. But it took five minutes of argument and a thorough checking of all the credentials I carried to convince the badly frightened Lanny. I dragged the body out of the water and up onto the grass. And then I went through his pockets. Uh, what did you find? A card. Oh? Yeah. From the Hawaiian Island Art Products Company, Limited. Number 12 Harbor Street. Mean anything? No, I've never heard of it. Oh, what's that on the back? Flight number and departure time of the plane I was supposed to take out of Los Angeles. Whoever he is, he's been one jump ahead of me all the time. <laughs> right up to your lily pond here. Was anyone with him when you gave him the cloak, a half-cast in the chauffeur's uniform, for instance? No, no, he no. was alone. I, I gave him the cloak just as Schindler had instructed me to, and... Listen, Lonnie, there was a down-at-the-heel redhead here just before you came out. He claimed to be a friend of yours. Oh, that was Lawrence Cochran, the poet. That guy's a poet? Yes. At least he was going to be. He wrote one great poem years ago about two lovers who leaped to death over the poly. Oh. To keep from being separated, and their souls turned into birds. It, it's still very popular here on the island. Mm-hmm. What happened then? Well, then he got the habit of drowning himself in gin. Now the natives call him Papuli, the crazy one. That's closer. Oh, he's always hanging around. I suppose he still believes he's in love with me. He's not so crazy. My mother wanted me to marry him at one time. Now that she's dead, he thinks he should look after me. Okay, Lonnie, let him keep thinking so. What do you mean? Well, I mean you can use a good watchdog right now. So when Cochran comes back, you make him park on your doorstep and you stay inside and be careful. With guys named Philip Marlowe getting knives in their backs, I've got a few things to do myself, but fast. I'd like to borrow that souped-up convertible of yours, Oh, huh? where are you going? Number 12 Harbor Street. 
and the Hawaiian Island Art Products Company Limited. Harbor Street was a narrow, twisting alley two blocks below King Street. A kind of social sargasso where the derelicts of the Pacific quietly founded in dives built into the damp crevices between warehouses. However, number 12 turned out to be practically a blank wall. There was one small window high up, a door with a heavy iron grill over the glass, on which Hawaiian Island Art Products Limited, I.K. Lee, president, was painted in small black letters, and a thin passageway blocked by an iron gate at the side of the building. A light burned inside, but the door was locked. So after I'd ruined my shoe shine and skinned all my knuckles, I managed to climb over the gate and edge down the passageway to the rear, where I could hear water running. It was a marble fountain playing in the center of a walled garden as oriental as the Forbidden City. I eased across its rigid daintiness to an open door, peeked in and then reached for my gun because sitting inside at a sleek white mahogany desk was the Chinaman in the gray Panama. Well, well, this is a somewhat unexpected turn of events. Ah, please, be careful with that gun, won't you? You be careful, Lee, and you won't have to worry about the gun. Now, tell me something. Why'd you break your neck to get Kamehameha's cloak anyway? You know what'll happen if you ever try to sell it? Oh, my good man. I can sell that cloak every day for the rest of my life. A few feathers at a time. Yeah? The world must be full of feather collectors, huh? But it is. <laughs> I manufacture the beautiful feather lace islanders wear on their hats. And while the bird is extinct, the desire for its gleaming feathers is not. One or two golden mamo feathers in each lay... And instead of a mere hundred dollars apiece, I can get double that, triple that. Now do you understand, Mr. Marlowe? You, um, you've got things a little mixed up, haven't you, Lee? Mixed up how so? Yeah, your boy Marlowe is dead up at Lonnie Collier's place. Oh, that. No, that was a Mr. Blake, an easily accessible gentleman I hired on Main Street in Los Angeles. Mm. He only pretended to be you, for obvious reasons. To intercept the feather cloak, huh? Oh, yes. I've known all about Pollard Schindler's plans since their inception. I followed every move he made. In fact, it was I who caused all your trouble on the way to the airport this morning by means of a bribe through your driver. Yeah. Aren't you the one? Yes. Mm. Too bad you won't be able to keep your nest lined with Kamehameha's bathrobe after all, Lee. Because I'm going to walk out of here with it or big chunks of your puss now, name it. The cloak now. Oh, I'm to gather from this you don't have it, Marlowe. Shrewd observation. And the Chandler, as I suspected, has tricked us You're both. You're stalling, Lee. I'm warning you. Start talking. Oh, that's all I wanted to find out. Go ahead, Jolo. That is judo, Mr. Marlowe. Almost like magic, isn't it? Jolo can break your back if I tell him to, Marlowe. So you behave. Chandler has the cloak, no doubt about it. So I must find him at once with no interference from you. So, Jolo... You have his gun? Yes. Lock him inside. Keep Marlowe until I call. I may need him later. From something the half-caste had done to my spine. With the edge of his hand, my legs were paralyzed. I felt like the practice dummy in a school for chiropractors. Every joint in my body ached when I moved. So I didn't move until a feeling oozed back into my legs. And then I wobbled to my feet and looked around. There was the small high window I'd seen from the street. A heavy chair, a desk with a lamp, and something like a picture framed in bamboo on the wall. I glanced at it, and then... And I looked back. 
and kept looking hard for a long, long time until I finally realized what it meant. The answer to the whole thing was contained in that bamboo frame. I had to get out and get out fast. I unplugged the lamp, plastered my back against the wall next to the door, and tapped on the lampshade to intrigue Jolo into coming in. It worked. When the knob turned slowly, I threw the lamp up at the window. A crash brought the door open with a jerk, and Jolo stepped in with my gun in his hand. What is going on here, Mr. Martin? Where are you? Answer! Right here, Jolo! Come on, get up! I've got some magic to show you now. A trick I learned in Kansas called a haymaker! I ran down the hall of the street door and out to the car. There was no traffic problem at that hour, so I jammed the gas pedal to the floor and held it there, right through the heart of Honolulu and up the twisting road that led to the mountains back of the city. The echoing roar of the motor as it tunneled through the forest lining the road was finally replaced by another roar, wind. The unending gale that shrieks through a precipitous pass 3,000 feet above the city, the Polly. I swung the car to the side of the road and ran the rest of the way out to where the rocks rose to a knife edge that dropped a sheer 1,000 feet to the valley floor. Then I spotted them. Lanny lying stunned at the cliff's edge and standing over her, his red hair ripped by the wind was the mad island poet drunk as a lord. And flapping around his shoulders like a pair of huge gold wings was the cloak of Kamehameha. Oh, don't weep, my love. I offer you the freedom of the bird. Come, Lonnie. No, 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 let me go, Lonnie. You're bad. No, Lonnie, you're the mad one to think you could sell your treasures and leave the island. Your destiny is here. No, stop it, you Schindler, but the fool kept on trying to kill this courier, the man you gave the cloak to. I'd kill a thousand times to keep you here with me. You belong to the islands, Lonnie, like this cloak, and I do. We must never leave. Come, it'll all be over soon, and our souls will turn to birds and live forever in this paradise. I know, I know. Are you all right, Lanny? Uh, yes, yes, I'm, I'm okay. I... Milo, look. The cloak. Cochran must have lost it as he fell. And the wind brought it back here to me. I, I, I don't want to touch it ever again. I know what you mean. Come on, baby. I'll carry it for you. Let's get out of here. Nothing like ham and eggs and good black coffee in the morning sun to make one forget an ugly night. Mm -hmm. Right, my friends? Absolutely right, Mr. Schindler. More coffee, Phil? Thanks, Lonnie. So Lee was picked up by the Honolulu police, Yeah, sure. I had it all set up. He'll spend some time in prison. And that Cholo, too. Oh, by the way, he was still unconscious when we got to him. What in the world did you hit him with, Marlowe? Enthusiasm, mostly. Uh, (laughs) That's when you got away and came up to the poly. hmm? Yeah. But, Phil, how did you know it was Lawrence and where he'd be? Well, it all tied in with that one popular poem Cochran had written, Lonnie, that anonymous letter you got in Los Angeles, Mr. Schindler, was a line from that poem. Kamehameha's cloak of golden feathers... We'll bring no less than than dead. How did you find that out, Marlowe? Well, when I was locked up in Lee's factory, I saw a full copy of that poem on the wall in a little bamboo frame. When I came to the line you just quoted, it stuck out like it was printed in neon. That Peg Cochran is the killer. Once I had that, I tried to look at things from his angle. 
He was a murderer, sure to be caught, uh-huh. desperately in love, insanely possessive of everything he thought belonged here in the islands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was an unbalanced lush as well. Oh, yeah. So the rest of it figured, that's all. And when he was cornered, he went back to the one important thing he'd ever done. Exactly, baby. He was lost. So he identified himself with the hero of his poem and took that as the only way out. Amazing. Truly an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. And a terrible thing, too, Mr. Schindler. Well, who knows? We all got what we went after, didn't we? Each of us. Even Lawrence Cochran. After Schindler left to catch a plane for the mainland, and Lonnie said aloha and left to get ready for our date, I sat on the lanai of the hotel and watched the sweep of the Pacific from Diamond Head to the hills across the harbor. From the white sands of Waikiki, the green shallows over the reef, to the purple depths beyond. And as a warm wind whispered through the palms, and a native strummed his ukulele under a banyan tree, I heard Lonnie whisper aloha. Aloha. What does aloha really Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast was Barry Kroger with Lorette Philbrandt, John Daner, Paul Fries, Byron Kane, and Clark Gordon. The special music is by Richard O'Ron. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... The thick fog that clung to Los Angeles made searching for the girl who was going to kill herself slow and easy. But in the end, I'd have settled for that and more because murder happened twice before I found the lady in Mink. (laughs) 